Welcome to the Accelerated Physics Podcast. It's a show where we talk about teaching and learning physics. I'm Sean Downs with the Poseidon Institute. Today is another episode about learning. Rather than offer some particular trick or hack, today we're going to take a more holistic view. That is, we're going to talk about what it means to think like a physicist. When I stepped into my first history class in college, the professor announced that his main goal was going to, quote, teach you how to think, unquote. My eyes went wide and then went really narrow. I gathered my things, left the lecture hall, and immediately dropped the course. I ended up struggling through some graduate-level Chinese history sequence, which in retrospect was a terrible idea. But whatever, it was interesting, and I survived. You see, I've never liked people telling me how to think. So I want to be crystal clear. I'm not offering any prescriptions here today. I'm not going to tell you how to think, or even what you should think. That's not what today is about. Physicists have their own culture, and part of that culture is a kind of collective self-reflection. One of the most common targets for that self-reflection? Creative problem-solving. There are lots of physicists who will talk your ear off about their problem-solving process. And to be fair, there's a lot of commonalities between everyone. So today, we'll offer some cultural perspectives on how physicists think, or at least what we think we think. Or put differently, what we think about when we think about how we think. The only other time someone explicitly told me how to think was in my graduate electrodynamics course. The professor was Peter McIntyre, an experimental professor of physics whose claim to fame includes recommending anti-proton beams at the Tevatron at Fermilab. Peter is, for lack of a better description, a force of nature. His reputation for being a hard-ass was well-deserved, but unlike many other garish personalities, he had the substance and evidence to support it. And we knew it, so we listened. His class, however impossible, did manage to improve my physical reasoning by a lot. Part of what made Peter's classes so hard were the problems that he came up with, seemingly on the fly. Homework problems and exam problems. These were the kinds of problems that were impenetrable at first glance, but afterwards become unsettlingly straightforward. (laughs) We'll explore one of those problems today, but first, a little context from integral calculus. When learning integral calculus, we often make a big deal about even and odd functions. That is, functions like, say, f of some variable x that behave in special ways under a flip of a minus sign. That is, when f of x goes to f of minus x. Even functions are those that are invariant under this flip. That is, f of x equals f of minus x. The simple function f of x equals x squared comes to mind. Odd functions pick up a minus sign when you flip the sign of x. You know, things like f of x equals x cubed, or even simply f of x equals 2x. We harp on these ideas of evenness and oddness because often they make doing integrals much easier. 
If you are integrating an odd function over some constant integral, say from minus L to L, it vanishes. So you can just write the answer down, zero. You don't even need to perform the integral. It's a neat trick. And you can split any reasonable function into its even and odd parts. Just think of a Taylor series expansion. Split the Taylor polynomial into terms with even powers of x and odd powers of x. So integrating any function over such an interval immediately eliminates half of those terms. In other words, you already know the answer to half the problem. Now, generically, functions are complicated and intervals aren't always so perfectly aligned, but that's besides the point. It's a trick. It's a tool for your toolkit. And the goal of learning in first-year mathematics really is to kind of build up a huge bag of tricks that you can deploy to solve other problems. Peter McIntyre loved to teach these tricks. Well, complicated variations on this even an odd trick, sure. And often he'd teach them to students the hard way, on exams. One particularly famous problem comes to mind. Benzene. Benzene is a molecule. It's C6H6. It's a ring of six carbon atoms where each carbon atom is doubly bonded to another. And each also gets a hydrogen atom. Benzene differs from other similar molecules like, say, cyclohexane, in that it is perfectly flat. Cyclohexane, C6H12, only has single bonds between its carbons, so you get these kind of weird chair conformers or physical states that the molecule kind of oscillates between. Cyclohexane is a little complicated, but benzene is not. Benzene is flat, it's rigid, and importantly, its chemistry affords a lot of industrial applications. Now, if you want to see a physics student panic, <laughs> ask them to model the electron configuration of a benzene ring. As undergraduates, we spent weeks studying the electron configuration of the hydrogen atom in a quantum mechanics course. Weeks! And that's just one atom. How are you going to model an entire super complicated organic chemical like benzene? Why, with symmetry, of course. You see, benzene is pretty symmetric. It's a hexagon. Each side of that hexagon looks exactly the same. It's also flat, so we don't have to worry about any kind of weird three-dimensional structure. In fact, with the right toolkit, this problem of benzene reduces immediately to what amounts to a one-dimensional problem in the radial variable, with the angular coordinates just kind of coming along for the ride. By symmetry. Because the benzene molecule is symmetric, all mathematical functions associated to it must also be symmetric. Just like how we can eliminate all of the odd terms from a Taylor series expansion while doing the right kind of even integral, we can eliminate all of the terms in our benzene molecule that don't look like r to the 6th, or r to the 12th, r to the 18th, and so on. I mean, there's details, sure, but that's the spirit of the argument. It's conceptually not that hard to see if you've seen it before. And that's the thing, the work of learning physics often amounts to contextual exposure to these kinds of problems. To think like a physicist amounts to matching tools in your toolkits to problems in the real world. It's a creative process. We'll talk a lot more about the physicist's toolkit in episodes to come. Each trick or tool comes with a whole lot of fun new ideas. 
but it's important to remember that learning physics is just as much about the exposure to new tools, to new ideas, as it is practicing with old ones. Often, those two things are related. And that's our show. The Accelerated Physics Podcast is brought to you by, oddly enough, the Physics Accelerator. The Physics Accelerator is a suite of support services offered by the Poseidon Institute related to learning and teaching physics effectively. One-page reference sheets, problem sets, coaching, and more. If you need a little help with your physics or math, or you're looking to extend your knowledge, please check us out. We're here for students from advanced high school on up, including any adults who want a quick way to refresh their skills. We're here for you at physicsaccelerator.com. The Accelerated Physics Podcast is a production of the Poseidon Institute, whose mission is to build and share physics knowledge without barriers. This podcast aims to serve both students and teachers of physics by injecting ideas and starting conversations. Do you have any ideas or feedback? Hey, drop us a line. This show is made possible in part by the Physics Accelerator, whose mission is to support people in the quest to learn mathematics and physics. The Physics Accelerator is a program of the Poseidon Institute. The show is written, edited, and produced by me, Sean Downs. Thank you so much for listening.